Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Okay, I asked some of you to be praying for no more snow, and either you all don't pray, or we don't have a good enough connection with God, or he, oh, is he spiting us? We'll get over it, won't we? We'll get through it. One of my, um, one of our, my favorite leaders here in our church is a man named Claire, Claire Borhoff, who's a vice chairman of our board, our elder board, and he reminds me, Adrian, it's a great day to make it a great day. That's a good word for us in the midst of the snow. We're so grateful, though, that you're here today. Again, my name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney Free. If you're joining us online, we welcome you as you're joining us online as well. We are in week two of this eight-week series titled Two Roads, Choosing the Hard Path of Jesus when religion in our world, religion in our culture, is so very easy today. And uh, last week, well, we talked about the narrow road of following Christ and the wide road, which is just many, many, many roads, isn't it? So many roads and the wide road, and they usually boil down to this, what is it that I want? The thing with the wide road is ultimately it's about what do I want? I generally become God on the wide road, whatever that looks like. We're going after the narrow road of following Jesus, even when it's hard, even when there's a cultural religion all around us that's kind of like got this little veneer of Christianity, this little superficiality of Christianity, but really doesn't have much as it relates to genuine discipleship to Christ. We're going after discipleship to Christ in this series. Perhaps this little analogy will help us as we get started today. One of the things that I like to do when I go to a new city, is kind of like to uh, feel my way through the city and even allow myself to get a little bit lost in the city, depending on whether I have kids in the back of the car or not. But if I don't have kids in the back of the car, I kind of enjoy going into a downtown area and just driving around and seeing it and feeling it and eventually getting to my destination. And by the time I get fully turned around and I've kind of got a feel for the city a little bit, I turn over and I pull out of my pocket probably the same thing that you do in that instance, a phone through which you type into an app something called GPS, right? And you open up that GPS and you get to type in the destination that you want to go to. You following me? And as you type in the destination though that you want to go to, there's a little bar that comes up and it says, from your location, does yours do this? From your location? Well, well, yeah, duh, from my location, yes. And so I want to get to my destination from my current location. And then you type it in, it gives you a number of different routes to get to your destination, but it always gives you a best route to get to the destination. You following me? There's a best route. And the destination though that we want is abundant life. All of us want that. We all want a life of joy and peace and love, a life of self-control and of patience and gentleness, a life of goodness. We all want that. And there's a best route to getting to that, and that best route of getting to it is the narrow road of Jesus. The narrow road of Jesus is the path of obedience, And the path of obedience is the very best route to lead you to abundance. And I'm here to tell you today that the path of obedience is the only route available 
to lead us to holiness. It's the only route available to lead us to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We will not be conformed to become more and more like Christ ourselves outside of the route, which is quite narrow, called obedience to Christ. You know how that GPS system works? There's a whole bunch of satellites in the sky around the globe. There's, there's dozens of them. And you type in your destination and instantly you are connected to usually at least three satellites. But there's one particular satellite that gets specifically and precisely at your present location and helps to navigate the best route to your destination with some help of these other satellites in the sky as well. There, there's one particular one that gets your location and then they work together to get you to your destination. What we're going to talk about here today is kind of like that one particular satellite, kind of like a North Star, if you will, to get us to the destination of the narrow road and being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, well, which is what we want. It's this. It's the holiness of God. The holiness of God is a satellite that guides our journey on the narrow road. Would you say that out loud with me? The holiness of God is a satellite that guides our journey on the narrow road. If you want to be on the narrow road, you've got to understand the holiness of God. You've got, you got to seek to live within the holiness of God. You've you got to receive Christ and then live up to the holiness of God if you want to be on the narrow road. Now, I, I said last week that we'd be preaching today on Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23. Raise your hand if you had an opportunity to read that this past week, kind of a sign-up file for homework last week. Anyone have a chance to, to read that this week? All right, thank you. Those of you who had a chance to read that this last week, you have, number one, extra credit. That gets you nothing, but... You also get this. You're ahead for next week? Yes! I just went away after last Sunday's message, and I went to my, my, my prayer closet, my, my prayer room that I regularly do, and I said, God, where do we need to go? And I am absolutely convinced that this series right now, Two Roads, is what God has dialed up for our church today. I actually believe that. I think where we are in the cultural state of religion today, this series has dialed up what God has for our church right now. But to really get into the teeth of it, I felt like we need to just take a moment to kind of meditate on what we mean by the holiness of God. We need to take a moment to meditate on this satellite that would guide our journey. Now, I'll admit on the front end of this message, so if, again, if you read Matthew 7, 15 to 23, you're ahead for next week. If you didn't have a chance to read that, you can read that file for next week, and that's what we'll be in uh, next Sunday. But I'll admit at the front end of this message, all talk of the holiness of God is to some degree, to, to some degree a feeble grasping at what we cannot completely understand. The holiness of God is something that is other than us. It's different, it's unique, it is pristine. It's like this perfect diamond with no spots, no holes, no discoloration. This perfect, pristine, radiant, shining diamond is the holiness of God. The Greek word for holiness as it relates to God speaks of this sense of awe. To be full of awe, 
not awful, full of awe. That when we would think of God, we'd say, wow, that's someone other than us. Awful, full of awe, set apart and unique. In my opinion, holiness along with, the, along with God's love formed together like the two great satellites in the sky that would guide our journey. They're more than just attributes of God. Love and holiness, hear me now, are more than attributes of God. Uh, power, knowledge, uh, graciousness, uh, immutability, unchangeability, all those things are attributes of God. The essence of God is holiness and love. That's the essence of God. That's why it says in 1 John 4, on two different occasions, God is love. Not he does loving things, he is love. The very essence, the very nature of God is love. The song of the Old Testament goes like this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the song of the Old Testament that's stated again and again throughout the Psalms and elsewhere. And then so also holiness. We're going to look at a passage today in 1 Peter chapter 1, which you can turn to if you'd like. We're going to look at a number of different passages. But in 1 Peter 1, it's going to say, God is holy. God is love and God is holy. We see this statement from the angels in the book of Isaiah that they see the Lord high and exalted. And as they see the Lord, they kind of bow down and they cover their eyes and they start singing this beautiful song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And, and, and they bow down. They say holy, holy, holy three times because three times in a row is this sense of perfection, of completion. It's only God that perfectly demonstrates holiness. How is it that we pray? How are we taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave us? Our Father who art in heaven, that's right, that's right, holy is your name. Hallowed be your name. Set apart is your name beyond compare. Uh, I've shared this before, but Leonardo da Vinci was such a master painter, such a master artist, that he did his famous portrait of the Lord's Supper in a very, very short time. You'll see a picture of it up on the screen. The Lord's Supper is one of his masterpieces, and it was so easy for him to do. He's such a brilliant artist and scientist that he, he put it together in a very, very short time. Then he backed away from it for a bit, and he painted the faces of the 12 disciples. And that also was very easy for him. But then he had to stop and go to that face in the middle, and he looked at it, and it was a blank canvas in front of him, and he said, what do I do with this? And he had to back away from it. And he tried to go back and paint it, and he started to get frustrated, but because he couldn't do it. He wasn't able to paint that center portrait of Jesus. Until finally, after a number of days by being frustrated, he went to it with his paintbrush, and he made a few quick strokes and completed the painting. He put down his paintbrush, and he says, there is no use in trying. I cannot paint him. That's it. I can't do it. He's other than, he's different, he's unique, he's holy. There's no use, I can't do it. Here's a definition for holiness. It means to be completely set apart from sin. It means to be blameless. Now we all want to become 
more holy. We want to become more like Christ, set apart to be like him. But God is, by his very nature, holy. The essence of who he is, is holy. And so to be totally set apart is to be, to some degree, indescribable. You can't completely describe him, but we're going to try anyway, aren't we? Okay, a bunch of scriptures here as we try to describe the beautiful, awe-inspiring holiness of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are different. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are different. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're different. Thank you, Lord, that you're not the same as everything we see every day. You are great, and you are awesome, and you are to some degree indescribable, and I know I cannot do it. But Father, I ask that you would give me clarity now as I speak from your word, what it says about your holiness and the implications it would have on the way we see you and even on how we live. We bow our hearts before you and we ask for your help. Through Christ, our Lord and our King, we pray together. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 57 says this. This is what the high and lofty one says. I live in a high and holy place. I am transcendent and other than. And yet in his holiness, I also am imminent with you. I am present with you. I live in the hearts of those who are humble and contrite, like us, to revive the spirit of the contrite and to revive the heart of the lowly. Both of these things is the holiness of God. Or think of Romans chapter 11, in which the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Consider then, consider then, the kindness and the sternness of God. Some translations put it, consider then the kindness and the severity of God. The holiness of God is this stunning sense that he is both far more kind far more compassionate, far more present, far more merciful, far more long-suffering than any of us would ever be. And yet at the same time, he is also far more stern and intense and truthful and just than any of us would ever be. He's high and holy, exalted and lofty, and yet compassionate in a way that we would never be. And so I want to give this warning that we are in a dangerous place as a culture. We're in a place as a culture where we see a watered-down, superficial, humanistic religion all around us. And friends, if you turn on the television and you watch any number, not all, but any number of TV preachers, that is exactly what you'll see. And I'm not trying to insult them. There are probably some good ones out there. But there are a lot of them that just want this good old chap portrait of God who kind of will pat you on your head but demand nothing of substance from you. And that leads us to this cultural place of religion today that again is this little superficial veneer of Christianity but is devoid of any of its power. 
It's devoid of its power, but because it's like all the bennies without any of the costs. It's all of the goodies, all the sweets, without any of the veggies. It's all the cookies without any of the meat. It's I want God on my terms rather than discipleship on his terms. And unfortunately, that's kind of the culture that we are moving into increasingly across our country today in which people say, I just want a little bit of Jesus, but not too much. Give me a little bit of cheap grace, please, to kind of cover my sins, and then I'll go do what I want to do, and I'll have you as Savior, but this whole bit of having you as Lord, I'll leave that for some other people. Now, Peter, fortunately, gives us an alternative to that, again, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and I really take these words to heart, but because you think about Peter, in Luke chapter 9, he witnesses, well, what's called the transfiguration of Jesus. When he sees the God-man Jesus together in one in this instance, that the disciples had been witnessing the man Jesus, he was God, but they didn't fully know it or understand it or comprehend it, and then right before their eyes, he is transfigured for a moment into his resurrected form, and he's like stammering away. He doesn't know what to do with it, okay? And he bows, and he says, well, what do I do with this? He witnessed that. He witnessed the holiness of Jesus. He also witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. He was there, along with many others, to see Jesus in his resurrected body. And he was so transformed by it all that he gave his life for Jesus, only to be crucified upside down a few years later. Because he wouldn't stop talking about the things that he saw and about the resurrection of Christ. And then he wrote a couple letters for our benefit and for the church in that time as well. We're going to look at 1 Peter, Peter chapter 1 verses 14 to 19. Let's look at the first few verses here. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. That means when you were not yet a follower of Christ, when you didn't yet realize how much he did for you, you just lived like you wanted to, just like I did, okay? When you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting from the Old Testament scriptures there in Leviticus where it says this of God, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, underline that word, impartially, live out your time as foreigners here, strangers here, in reverent fear. Let me pause there for just a moment. What he's saying here is be set apart from the crowd Stand out from your former way of life and from the crowd all around you. Be holy as God is holy. Be set apart as God is set apart. You used to go this way. Don't be conformed to that way any longer. Instead, as you abide in Christ day in and day out, begin to go on the narrow road. Begin to follow him well, with the wholeness of your life. Why? Because he judges each person's life. Not on a curve. Do you ever have a class where you're graded on a curve? That's not our God. He judges each person's life not on a curve, but by his impartial and holy standard for the way we are to live. And that's a good thing 
for us to understand that he does not judge us on the basis of a curve, but, but on the basis of his great and perfect standard. That actually motivates us to set our, ourselves apart from other people, to set ourselves apart from the crowd, such that we would be holy as he is holy. You see, we want to even grasp this idea of being strangers here, being foreigners here, that we will to some degree be foreigners here on earth, and that's okay. We don't land, first and foremost, in the kingdom called America. We don't land, first and foremost, in the kingdom called this world. We certainly don't land in that. We don't want to land, first and foremost, in the kingdom of our immediate culture all around us. We want to be in the kingdom of God that we focus our hearts on what Jesus wants, which sometimes will be similar to what culture wants, but oftentimes will set us apart from culture and certainly will set us apart from the crowd. If you are taking notes, I pray that you will write this down because this is for kids and for college students and for high school students and for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. The more you care about Christ, the less you will care about the crowd. The more you care about Christ, the less you're going to care about the crowd, and the more you're going to feel comfortable saying, I'm going to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, not a citizen of this world, and even if that means I'm going to stand out from the crowd at time to time, then so be it, because I'm going after him, not after the applause of other people. Verse 18 goes on with this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not with wealth that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors, not by the good deeds of your parents, not by your previous good deeds, not by silver or gold, not by anything else that you were purchased from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors, but by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, the perfect spotless lamb, without blemish or defect that we were purchased. And I don't know about you, I mean, when I realized that when I was unholy, when I was just walking with the crowd, when I was just living in the desires of my flesh, Jesus decided to come die for me. Man, I, I, I can't think of anything that motivates me more. I can't think of anything that triggers more worship and more gratitude than to pause and to reflect on that. And and friends, we want to live out of this sense of worship and gratitude that that God did this for us, and so I, I worship you, God. It's not just this singing time at the beginning of the worship service. I kind of hate that we even call that worship. (laughs) All of life is worship. That, That we say, with my entire life, I give myself to you because of what you have done for me. You, you made me, and then you died for me when I was far from you, and you bring me to, to yourself, and, and so I just worship because I love you, and I want to live for you. Now, I mean, to be sure, my friends, if we go after the holiness of God, it will, in the long term, result in benefits for us. I don't want to suggest that it won't. I don't want to be too heavy here to suggest that it won't. It will over time, as we talked about a bit last week. Happiness will be a wonderful byproduct of holiness. We pursue holiness and happiness will come from it over time. And the life of abundance is found on the pathway of obedience. Those things will come. But to strive for those first is to put the cart before the horse. What we want to strive for first is just say, God, if you're holy, I want to imitate you. 
Why? Because I want to please you. Because you've given it all for me. And because I love you, and so I want to live up to your standards out of what you have done for me in Jesus Christ when you gave your precious blood for me, Lord Jesus. And friends, if we do this, if we do this, we will receive the benefits later on, but it doesn't start with that. If we're starting to think of God, if you're starting to think of God or talk of God as this good old chap that kind of just pats you on the head and, you know, you want all of his, his love, but you don't want his intensity. You want his love, but you don't really want his, his holiness. I just want to give this warning. The results of that are huge. Number one, it makes the cross meaningless. It makes the cross meaningless. And number two, it turns God's commandments into little suggestions. Let me explain. The contemporary all love and no intensity portraits of God, they render the cross meaningless. Like why in the world would Jesus go to die on a cross to pay for my sins, to pay for your sins, to pay for our sins if, he was not, if God was not actually angry about them? That would be a trifling death. That'd be a wasteful and meaningless death if he's not actually angry with our sins. But because he's actually angry with our sins, and yet at the same time he's actually loving toward you, toward me exactly where we are, he sends his son to earth to die for us and bring us to God, and he thereby preserves both his holiness that he will not fellowship with sin and his love that he still wants you. He still wants us just where we are. But to treat God like all love and no holiness, as is happening so frequently in our world today, that makes all the ideas of forgiveness and atonement and getting right with God and the cross itself meaningless. Moreover, the all love, no holiness contemporary portrait of God makes tolerance the most important virtue in our culture. And have you noticed that that now is the most important virtue in our culture? Like the one thing you cannot say in our culture is, this is right and this is wrong. And why do I say that? Because God says that. And that's the one thing you cannot say anymore in our culture. Right? It, this is the primary virtue in our culture today. I will tolerate what you believe. You tolerate what I believe. Even more than that, it's becoming this. You accept what I believe. And I accept what you believe. And let's just pretend that we're all saying the same thing when we're not. And that becomes the primary virtue when we start to develop an all love no holiness portrait of God and then it turns things like the Ten Commandments into ten little suggestions and I submit to you that is not a God worth worshiping but a God who says I love you just where you are please hear this a God who says I love you just where you are today but I am not done with you I want you I desire you I hold out my arms to you, and I want to conform you to the likeness of my son because I have higher standards for you. I want the very best for you, which will happen slowly over time as you learn to abide in me. That kind of God, a God who says, I don't have a backbone made of wet noodle. I have a backbone that's made of steel, and I am the same yesterday and today and forevermore, and my character does not change from decade to decade. A God who is full of love and full of power, full of holiness and full of grace, that, my friends, is a God that is worthy of our worship.
You'll remember in the scriptures over and over again, as people encounter the holiness of God, they just fall down. I'll give you a couple examples. You think of Moses. Moses went up to Mount Sinai, but before he went to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, he said, he said God, would you please show me your glory? Would you please show me your glory? And God said to him, Moses, you can't see all my glory and live. You can't even see all my glory and live. He said, but I'll let you see part of it. Okay, so you kind of hide yourself behind the cleft of the rock and shield your face, and then I will pass my goodness before you. And so Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and he's basking in the presence of God, and here's what it says. He passed, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin that need to be forgiven, and yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. You see it again there? The kindness and the severity of God together in one. This is the holiness of God. And he sees the holiness of God. And those of you who know your Bible, what's the next thing that Moses does? He fell to the ground. He bowed down. The very next word is Moses bowed down to the ground, and he worshiped at once. He sees the holiness of God, and he recognizes, I cannot stand in his presence. He's basking in the presence of God, and quite literally, he bows to the ground. This is what we see again and again in the scriptures as a standard operating procedure when someone comes into the presence of God. They fall down. Whether it be Elijah, or Moses, or Paul, or Peter, or the angels in Isaiah, they come into the presence of God, and there is no flippancy. Yahweh, my homeboy. No, it ain't like that. It ain't Yahweh, my homeboy. There's no flippancy. Let me give you a fist pound. No, it's I fall to the ground, quite literally, in the presence of God. You, you know, we think about a beautiful passage like John chapter 15. It says, abide in Christ, and he will abide in you. And this is our daily practice to abide in Christ. What if we actually did this? That we abide in Christ and we realize that we are brought into the very words of God in Scripture and we can invite God's presence to us and we experience God's presence. The only proper response as we experience God's presence over and over again in the Scripture is we fall down. We, we, we fall down even on our face and this is a good posture to be in. We experience the presence of God and God, I realize I'm not special. No matter what people have said to me this week, I'm not. But you're special. You are awesome. You are great. You are totally other. Do you bow down to God? Like to do this is good. Now you may not be able to and that's just fine. And ultimately what we're talking about is a posture of the heart. But there's something powerful about falling to your knees or falling prostrate before the Lord. And if you want to do that as we're singing, you, you can do that in here. That's just fine. You can sit down and bow down your head because there's something about this position that says, no, I'm not in charge. Like, I'm really not all that special, no matter what you say about me, and some of you are very kind to me. But I am not that special. And I'm in the presence of God. You know, it's this sense, this beautiful sense of the lion and the lamb. Lion and the lamb together in one. Just look at that portrait on the screen here of the lion and the lamb for just a moment. And, and you think of Jesus. He is the lion and the lamb. He's ferocious, and he's gentle, 
He's intense. And he's warm. He's passionate. And he's inviting. He's relentless. He's powerful. He's humble. He's strong. He's gracious. He's the lion and the lamb. He's all of this. He's the holy one. To which Da Vinci said, oh, I can't paint him. There's no use. He got it. There's no use. I, I, I can't do it. He's in, indescribable. Or Isaiah. He encountered the Lord in that beautiful portrait in Isaiah chapter 6 when the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And you remember what Isaiah did? He falls down and he says, woe to me. I am a man. He doesn't look at other people. He does not look out the window. He looks in the mirror. I am a man of unclean lips. Look at me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Or perhaps it's best described by the Apostle John, who likewise witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, likewise witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. And then he had this beautiful vision of Jesus at the beginning of Revelation. Revelation 1 is a beautiful, beautiful portrait of the resurrected Christ. And John receives that, and out of that he writes the book of Revelation. And he's so astounded by the beauty of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and the miraculous power and the love and the strength of Jesus that the immediate response he gives in Revelation 1.17 is this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> he is awesome. I mean, he recaptures the sense of awe, the greatness of God. I see him, and I fall at my face as though dead. And yet, this beautiful response of Jesus, please see this in verses 17 and 18. It says, then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive again, and I live forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I don't know about you, I, I, I read these verses last week, I studied for this message, and I, I, I had this sense of my knees knocking, even to preach it, I had this sense of my knees knocking, like, I shouldn't be able to preach on this, and I'm not able to preach on it. And you can even feel this fear of, maybe I don't belong in the presence of God. But don't miss what Jesus did. In his love and his holiness, John is on the ground, and what does Jesus do? He takes his right hand, and he puts his right hand on John's shoulder. And the right hand is the hand of authority, and to put it on his shoulder is to give him a touch of his love. And, and he says, it's okay, you can stand, <laughs> because I've, I've paid it all, and you can stand in my presence. I've paid for all of your sins, John, past, present, and future. He has paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. If you have received him as Lord and King and Savior, you are his, and you can stand with him. And he comes to you, and he simply says to you, I will give you the GPS for your journey. I'll give you the future destination, and we can start from your present location. We'll just start from your present location. And he says, you can stand in my presence, and I am in no way ashamed of you, and we'll go after my holiness together. Friends, in this series, we're talking about the holiness of God, the narrow path, and the implication it has 
for our pursuit of holiness as we seek to follow Christ and be bright, shining lights in a dying world. And I just want you to know, as we go through this series, here's not what I'm going to do. Holiness does not equal legalism. We are not going to be legalistic, I promise. Holiness does not mean a bunch of to-dos and a bunch of to-don'ts. That's not where we're going. We're going way deeper than that. We're going in the narrow road of discipleship, of, apprentices, of apprenticeship, of following Jesus in all things. Because that's what God has dialed up for our church. And so if you're fearful today that in talking about the holiness of God, it's going to be overly intense or we're going to get legalistic. We're not. I don't want to build that kind of church. God forbid. I hate legalism. I abhor it. So ladies, you're not going to come in here and hear about makeup or hear about how to wear your hair or how long your skirt should be or any of that ridiculous stuff. That's not, it's too low. Men, you're not going to come in here and hear about do not drink, do not dance, do not chew, don't hang out with girls who do. You're not going to see a holier-than-thou pastor. And I don't want to see holier-than-thou people. Because that's not who we are here. We're people who come to God from right where we are. And he says, I'll take you from your current location to the destination of becoming more like Christ. And we say, bring it on. Father, please help us. Father, please help us. We're not there. We're far from being there. And we need your help. We thank you so much, Father, that you invite us to a much, much higher standard than this world. I don't want to live down to the standard of this world. I want to follow the words of God that say, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so, Father, we ask for your help. We admit that none of us are there, no one on stage is there, no one in this audience, no one watching online is there today, and we ask for your help, Lord God, that you would conform us more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ. To the extent that we have failed this last week, we ask that you would forgive us. Father, before we take communion, it's probably wise for us to just take a moment right now, and we'd ask that you would forgive us. And so in silence, Lord, we come before you and we just take a moment to admit to you the ways that we have missed your mark. Perhaps this past week, this last month, or maybe even this morning. Father, in all of these ways and more, we admit to you that we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not completely loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not loved those that we don't like the way your son, Jesus, instructed us to do. this, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And 
Father, for the things that you would have us do that we have not done. There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. There are things that you've asked us to do and we've just ignored it. And I know that's true in my life. And so for the times that I've failed, even this past week, to do what you are asking me to do, and I said no. I admit those, those were times that I put myself on the throne. And again, I'm sorry and I repent. Father, you've intended that each and every time we come to the communion table, we would be reminded again of the extraordinary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ to pay for all of those sins that we just noted. So we thank you. As we receive these symbols of your son's body and your son's blood, we thank you, Jesus, that you paid it all to bring us back to God, that you at the cross brought together your kindness and your severity. That you were not willing to sacrifice your holiness, God. And you were not willing to sacrifice your love. And for that we give you thanksgiving and praise. Through Christ our Lord we pray together. Amen. We are going to take communion right now and you're a follower of Christ, we would love for you to take communion. And you got to know that you're forgiven. And if you're not yet there, that's fine. You don't need to take the elements. And perhaps you have further questions. Come talk to me or one of the pastors or prayer partners after service if you have further questions. But in taking this, we say, I believe Jesus, you gave yourself for me. We proclaim in taking this you are my Savior, and I needed to be saved. You are my Lord, and I desire to obey.